Welcome back to the ABC Music Talk podcast. This episode is the first in a new category called Disciplines. In these episodes, I'll be speaking to some of the most interesting people in my network, talking about what they do, how they got their start, and some of the things they enjoy about their daily lives and careers, as well as any tips for those of you interested in following a similar path. I get to kick this new category off by speaking to the journalist, author, and all-round industry expert, Eamon Ford. Welcome to the ABC Music Talk podcast. Hello. Uh, we need someone who, with the initial D, and then kind of A B C D E F. Uh, that that's an excellent idea. And then we can get I, Sesame Street to sponsor it. I will hit my LinkedIn. Right. Who's, and who's got a D? Dido. Get Dido in. Dido is yeah. is is on the list. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Along with any other celebrity. Call yeah. D. Yes. <laughs> D D Ramon. He's dad. Sorry about that. Um, so now, given this is my first interview. Yes. Um, it does seem slightly foolish to interview a professional interviewer. My, my guess is this wouldn't be the sort of advice you might give somebody starting out as a journalist. I would absolutely give that uh, advice to people who are starting out as journalists. It's, it's what the, the Marxists would call praxis. You only kind of learn how to do something by doing it. Tony Wilson from Factory used to bang on about that a lot. So it's like you just go out there and do it. It's the only way to do it. Like You can read books about this. But it's like anything, you just kind of have to kind of figure your own way. That, I mean, certainly, uh, obviously, I've started to look at podcasts, and that seems to be the overriding advice. Yes. You know, obviously, have a little plan as, as to what, where you're going with it all, but ultimately, yeah, have, have, just have, get started. Yeah, have some notes and stuff, but just do it, because everybody kind of interviews in their own way. And like pretty much every journalist I know will have a different kind of technique, and you just kind of find the technique that works for you. I tend to not ask questions. I kind of meander and just hope people get bored of my meandering and then just start <laughs> to answer what they think I'm trying to get. Some people have a very straight, here are my questions. Some people take a very kind of combative approach. Some people take a very kind of uh, arch approach. And it's just kind of what, it's what you're after. What, what do you want to get out of this person and what do you think is the best way to do it? Some people genuinely want to kind of raise people's hackles and I don't want to do that I think if you kind of my approach is to kind of have more of a conversation rather than a structured interview yeah sure around questions and that's just that's kind of the what I've kind of found myself most comfortable doing but that's just through just rinse and repeat where you just kind of find whatever it is that you're interested in and I think kind of going if you have a kind of conversational approach because it's not for broadcast because I mostly write stuff up, you can kind of meandering is absolutely fine, and you just might end up on something that you didn't intend to. They, you, you just kind of sometimes you kind of throw all your questions away. You just kind of follow their thread. <coughs> right, so, so you can kind of edit out some of the stuff that oh, isn't, God, yeah. isn't, no, isn't like very the, relevant. Yeah, the great thing about writing up is that. Uh, well, the worst thing is when you're transcribing and you have to listen back to your terrible questions. <laughs> But you can edit those. I kind of, I still, 20 years later, wince when I hear my own voice uh, asking questions, just going, get to the point. Right, yeah. Uh, but but I, it, it's fine, but you can also just kind of edit out the bits where they're kind of building up to what it is that they say that's interesting. Yeah. And you, it's, that's where all the kind of serendipity, I think, in interviews comes from, where it's just the... It's the not even the road less travelled. It's the road that you didn't even think was right. on the map. So you just keep fishing until you find the well, it's, thing it's, that, that, that... That sounds very structured and, and 
I didn't, cynical's not the right word, but it, that seems kind of like I've got this kind of master plan. I haven't. It's just happenstance. It's just you might just luck luck across it, like kind of you just find a little seam of something. You go, oh, that's really interesting, and it's outside of your questions because your questions tend to be a kind of a guide or vague signposts, but it's not kind of precise geolocation for where you want to go. It's just a vague interest area here and then you can kind of dig down into it so and then somebody else might just wander off you can do as much research as you want but somebody might say something and you suddenly go oh I've never thought of that that's really interesting let's talk about that right and so your curiosity kind of takes over and you start to sort of take you know dig dig into it and I think kind of a willingness to throw your questions away yeah uh, briefly because I think you should also try and get them to answer what you want to find out but also Except that the inter- I think yeah, if an interview is answering the, giving you the answers that you expect, you're doing it wrong. I think I think you should be a surprise. You should get at least something that's surprising in your answers, or it should go somewhere that you didn't intend it to go. Right. It might be on go unused in the piece, but it's the fact that it's this kind of fluid relationship rather than a very. I've seen people who do interviews. And I've seen it at conferences. And I understand why they do it. It's very precise. They read out a question, people yeah. answer. And then they move on to the and next. And they move on to the next question. Yeah. And that's, why, that's, that's kind of their technique, because they go, right, OK, I, I want a very tight structure to yeah. this. And mine is much more... I Certainly when I moderate panels, I'll have about maybe 40 questions... And I will happily just kind of just discard stuff. Depending on where but the kind I'm of conversation kind of also, goes. Yeah, but I'm also terrified that I, if I've got 40 minutes to fill and get people talking, at least my questions on their own, even if they give monosyllabic answers, at least I can fill 40 minutes yeah. with just my questions. That, yeah. well, I, was, I was moderating a couple of panels out in Malaysia, <clears> um, which you know is always interesting when you do these things in other countries because yeah. you're often... He's sort of fighting against multiple different languages of, yes. of, of the different panelists, and uh, and yeah, I, I, unfortunately, my, mine went okay. But I did watch somebody kind of uh, get up and do this thing, and they had all these questions, but then they just ran out because the person they were interviewing just, as you said, like gave these monosyllabic answers, oh, and and it was just this kind of we've got twenty minutes left type <laughs> of thing. Like, anyone got any questions in the audience? And it was just, it, I mean, you know, you yeah, really my, felt for <coughs> you know. But, my my tip for all of that is genuinely write three times more questions than you think you'll need yeah and also be prepared to kind of follow threads although i did a thing at web summit last week and it was on one of the reasonably big stages and just the echo of the stage it was very weird and you couldn't really follow what people were saying and i just think it makes for a very bad interview i just felt like i was just going i vaguely following what they've said i'm just going to have to ask them the next question on my list just because <laughs> You could hear your own voice booming. Yeah. And it was so weird. The, just the, the sonics of it were very, very disconcerting. And I just felt that it made for a very kind of, uh, I don't know, very kind of uptight kind of interview. Yeah. Session. I don't know why. I, it was I, just very weird. And also they, they space you out because they've got a big stage to fill. Yeah, right, So right, maybe right, that's right, what right. it's like, like being on stage with the Rolling Stones or something. <laughs> you can't. 
maybe maybe that's what they, they they haven't heard or maybe they hear themselves too much i don't know yeah i don't know yeah. interesting um so i i do have questions so i i am, okay. am going to ask a few of them but I'm, i'll try, i'll take your advice and try not to get too caught up in them but so um uh, more of a statement at first this so these days you're a familiar name voice and face to many in the industry i don't know face, about that face for print why, why why do you think i'm doing a podcast <laughs> <laughs> Listeners should know that we are we're like bronzed Adonis's sitting here. <laughs> They'll never know. Um, and your work sees you appear on, on TV, radio, and writing for broadsheet, newspapers, on the conference circuit, and of course as an author. But yeah. before I, we get into all that, I, I want to wind the clock back and sort of, you know, ha, how did it all begin? Um, how did you get your start? Was it always the plan? And also one of the other things, when I introduced you, I didn't introduce you by your proper name, which is... Dr. Eamon Ford. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, then we will get to that. Yes. Right. God, where do I start? Um, what, what, did you, what did you study at university? I did like media was... study. Well, like, okay. God, I'm like the, the popular singing group, the three degrees. So I did an undergrad, I did a master's, and then I did a PhD. So I basically, I spent the 90s in academia. And it was all kind of unintentional. I grew up in countryside, proper countryside in Northern Ireland, miles from anywhere. My dad's a builder, my mum was a secretary. So there was no kind of idea of kind of connection to the entertainment industry at all or any kind of career path. But my mum, to your credit, forced me and my brother to kind of join the local library and read. And that was a kind of when you're a kid, you just go, I don't want to read, it's awful. And fortunately, I had a mum that kind of encouraged that. And then I did my, I got through, did my A-levels, and like an obvious thing where I grew up would have been it was a farming community, so people would have left and gone work on the farm, or I would have gone work for my dad in the building site, which I did, which I'll get to. Yeah. And uh, I did A-levels, and then some people in my class were talking about media studies, and I thought, that's interesting. Did you, did you know what it was? I vaguely knew what yeah. it was. And then I applied to and got into Coleraine, which wasn't that far from where I grew up. So I did an undergrad there for three years and then couldn't get a job. And my dad said, well, you're not sitting around on the dole. So I spent a year working on building site for my dad. Oh, wow. Which was the great, <coughs> this is not what, <coughs> you're physically not cut out for this. <laughs> I, was, I, I was very good at kind of lifting things and smashing things down, but actually... Building things, not, and just kind of watching. What, from like a te- <coughs> technical point of view? Like? Yeah, I could kind of solve things, but like kind of like bricklaying, any of that, just rubbish. I'd mix cement. I was very good at mixing cement. Yeah, yeah. Like the kind of the, the properly unskilled stuff I was, I was kind of good at. And uh, then I applied for a master's in, uh, in Leicester. And <coughs> at that point, sorry, I'm going to have to cough. No, you go ahead. <coughs> sorry, excuse me. <laughs> Uh, and I applied for a master's in Leicester. Unfortunately, they had a scholarships theme, and this is uh, uh, obviously this would now disappear because we're leaving the European Union. Maybe, but there was a thing, <laughs> I mean, uh, are we? <laughs> there, there was a thing called the European Social Fund that, uh, and the course I'd applied for had a couple of places that would pay. They would give you, they would pay your fees, and they would give you a grant for a right. year, and you had to do some kind of research work for the department as part of that. And I got one of those because they had classed Northern Ireland as an area of high unemployment, 
and Lou Walker Tuna Lake. And because I was coming from there, I was able, they had a couple of places and I applied for it and got it so oh, wow. I could go to Leicester. And then I did a master's and because I had spent a year on a building site, I'm thinking I can't go back to because it's just, it's just, I'm rubbish at this. Yeah. Uh, then basically just spent that whole year just studying and really working hard. And then the department asked me to stay on and do some kind of tutoring and stuff. And then I ended up just kind of doing extra tutoring and they had a research department. So I ended up in that and I did, I did that for a couple of years. And then my old tutor who taught on a music course and that told me about a scholarship at University of Westminster for mm-hmm. PhDs. And I applied for that and got that. So I was incredibly lucky, kind of like I, I got into my undergrad just as they'd frozen the grants and were slowly introducing student loans, but you still got your fees paid. You still got a quote unquote living grant, which obviously you couldn't live on. <laughs> but I was able to go through and get a master's and then go to move to London with, uh, so I did a PhD at uh, Westminster. And the kind of the plan was to get to London somehow. This is like a really meandering Dick Whittington story. <laughs> no, it's uh, good. Yeah. To, to kind of get to London at some point. And I thought, I genuinely thought that my career was going to be academia, kind of specialising in music. Oh, interesting. And that's genuinely what I thought I was going to do. And then I met uh, someone at uh, University of Westminster, uh, my friend Alex, who's now my best friend, who was working on a research project. And then she joined, she she finished a research project while I was still doing my PhD. And she joined an organization that was just starting called AIM, the Association of Independent I've, Music. I've never heard of it other than the fact that I worked there for yeah. a while. Yes, <laughs> yes, this is nepotism. Really, I mean, and, so much so. And I was still doing my PhD at the time, and Alex calls me up one day and said, can you come in and do a week's work for us? We do, it's our first AGM, and we've got a load of packs to send out to members, and we just need someone to print stuff out and post it. And that was literally mm. my, my first job in the music industry was stuffing envelopes for a week. Amazing. In the AIM offices in uh, Chiswick. Hogarth Roundabout, fuck fans. Yeah. And <laughs> it was a really small operation. You hadn't come in at that point, but it was like Alison who was running it, Helen who was head of legal, Alex who was in charge of membership, Rami, and Gavin who was doing all the digital stuff. Yeah. And that was it. I th- no, Michael was in doing some legal consultancy yeah, work Michael, yeah. and Sam was doing press, but that was on a consultancy level. But there was yeah. like five people in the office, it was tiny. Yeah, yeah. And then they never asked me to leave. So, so, so what year was that then? This was, oh my goodness, what year did I come in? 2000, I think. 2000. So we just, we just missed each other. Yeah, because so, I, I, I arrived in the offices. I mean, I was kind of there as, as part of rights routes in this consultancy thing. And I think that was yeah. uh, 2003, maybe. I think I was probably like kicking around. No, I, I think maybe I left at that point. God, I can't remember. Because, I mean, Gavin, who you mentioned yes. just there, Gavin Robertson. Yes. Right? Yeah, so, the uh, mighty Gavin Robertson. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and Steve, late, yeah. late, late Steve Johnson. I know, it's sad, it's Lovely um, Steve. Um, and uh, yeah, so I mean, I you know, I had a sort of a very, a very sort of interesting time there because it was at the sort of beginning of digital. It um, was really exciting because I was yeah. I was in the EM offices when they were trying to do a deal with Napster, when it was the great pariah of the music yeah. industry, and suddenly, and like that first ATM <laughs> or the second ATM, Sean Fanning was there. They flew oh, him over for real. Yeah, and they did it in the 
in Chelsea football ground, not in like in the stadium, but like <laughs> in kind of in Sean a, Fanning on the centre yeah, spot <laughs> in a conference suite, and Sean Fanning was there. And just wow. you're going like literally the most famous person in the music industry. It's just if, this yeah. shy kid with the baseball bat, yeah, yeah. baseball cap, and yeah. that was amazing. You're just going, oh my God, amazing. And then also just the fact that. And his name was mentioned at the top of this. Like people like Tony Wilson would just right. be in the office, and you're going, "That's Tony Wilson." Because when I was growing up, I was really interested in the business side of things as much as I was in the music. Why? Why? Why, why, why did the business <coughs> capture your imagination? I, I was just intrigued about how the whole thing worked, and then obviously I would be reading around that. And then, like when I did kind of on the academic side of things, they, it would be talking about the music industry. So it was like kind right. of like sociology of the music industry. So you would understand. So you would learn about major labels and independence and like have a vague structure of the music industry. And then you would just read stuff about, and I vividly remember uh, buying records and the first album I ever bought was Back in Black by ACDC and the, it had the Atlantic logo that's, that's on a, it. That's a good one to be able to quote, isn't it? Because uh, not, know, not everybody's first record is... Yeah, but <laughs> I, was, I was about thir- 12 or 13 at the time okay. because my parents didn't have any music in the house. We didn't have anything to play it on. And my mum had a, a tape for dictation and right. that's what I would play my tapes on ah. for like the first two years. And so you, you were buying cassettes instead yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Okay. I cassettes. So I remember vividly buying uh, Back in Black. So I was a little bit older, so I kind of knew I, I wanted to get this album. Right. And I remember like seeing the Atlantic logo and then the address, Rockefeller Plaza, New York. And this ah, was like, right, this just yeah. seemed like the most glamorous place in the world because this was where the magic happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was kind of really interested in that, kind of looking at labels and understanding about labels. And then being, working at AIM, you had people like Daniel Miller from you, who'd yeah, be course, in the office, yeah. or Martin Mills, who'd set up uh, mm-hmm. running bankers. All of these, like uh, uh, Jeff Travis, all of these people would kind of be around that world. Go, this yeah. is amazing. Well, I mean, I mean, they they were huge parts of that whole development of that, you know, uh, independent trade body. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. The, but just the fact that you were going, you signed like Tony yeah, Wilson, yeah, you're going, yeah, you yeah. signed Joy Division, yeah, and just ridiculous things like that. Or Daniel Miller, you're like you discovered the Pash Mode. Yeah, like I mean, like how are you going to top that? Yeah, like, absolutely. And then it was just amazing to kind of be in that world, kind of like proximity. So I was kind of. As excited to meet the people behind music companies as I was to meet the pop stars, I was I was as interested, perhaps more interested, in those kind of people. And then, kind of, in my career, I kind of interviewed people like Seymour Stein, and you just go, my God, yeah. like like kind of the yeah. legacy of these people and the fact that you can sit down and just have a conversation with kind of people who, and it's a cliche that kind of soundtrack your life, but like. They discovered all of these amazing artists that, they just that had a big influence on your life. Yeah, right? completely. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's that. I think maybe it's that that they're almost like magicians <laughs> who kind of suddenly <laughs> find these people and then presented them to the world. Yeah. And I just love that the fact that someone could go into like Seymour Stein. It's a well-trod tale of going into CBGBs and. Uh, discovering talking heads and the Ramones and yeah. everything else, and you just go, oh my God, yeah. you kind of brought this to the world, or Madonna, or like all of these people kind of brought brought this incredible magic into the world, and I just thought, 
it's not just about the numbers. It's not just about selling stuff. These are, I think there was, it's on Tony Wilson's uh, handstone. I think he's described as a um, cultural, uh, what is it? A cultural catalyst, I think, was the way that he's described on his headstone and at, at their very best the people doing running these record companies are as important as the artists on those record companies and i don't necessarily see a distinction between them obviously there are people who work at record companies who should be allowed near <laughs> record companies or indeed any businesses but um, and this isn't just a major indie thing because i know loads of people at majors who are Amazing, or have done yeah. like amazing things. So like like Tony Wadsworth when he was at EMI, or Darkest Bees, who's now running Oil in yeah, the US. Course, these yeah. these people are amazing. They're the magicians, I yeah. think. So yeah. I was kind of a, as obsessed with them as I was with the people that they kind of brought forth because they wouldn't have happened without, or wouldn't have happened in that way if they hadn't met those people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I had, I had similar experiences for me. Okay, so so uh, so we first met when we were working together at an agency, mm-hmm. um, and by that literally around the corner from where in, we are. Indeed, yeah. yeah. Um, and and at the time, you were editor of uh, was it a weekly or monthly magazine? Monthly, a monthly magazine. Five, bulletin. something called Five Eight. Yes. And um, so, I, I'm, first of all, maybe just explain a little bit about that publication, but right. but also one of the things that I, I don't think I ever asked you, because my understanding was that 5.8, the magazine, was kind of like a, almost like an advert for the, the agency's work, and I've never kind of asked it you... Of, it was and it wasn't, because the company, Fruit, kind of kept changing what they were doing. I was right. there very early doors. I was like, I was the first employee uh, a million years ago, and they were starting to do kind of marketing stuff, branding stuff, and I was there, I think, six or seven years. Um, probably once every year, it wasn't quite this great, quote-unquote, pivot to video or whatever, sure. but they were going to change what they were doing. It was obviously, it was, digital was a big part of it. Right. And marketing was a big part of it. But a lot of the stuff, certainly in the early days, it wasn't, I wasn't really doing much marketing coverage. They were kind of doing that. Right. So it was kind of information, industry analysis, stats, a lot of that, a lot of interviews. And kind of as it changed, because obviously you can kind of see a disconnect between the publication and, and the organisation, they would go, like, there'd be a lot more market, but it didn't just become a marketing publication. So mm-hmm. it was like there was kind of balance and all of that sort of stuff. Also, as part of that job, used to do a yearbook for um, Lawyers Association as mm-hmm. well so they began right, like okay. legal stuff as well so right, 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 and right. because it was really small you just ended up doing lots of lots of stuff so yeah we'd, there'd be a lot of technology a lot of obviously legal stuff but there'd be kind of marketing stuff advertising branding wider media stuff yeah so it wasn't like i didn't necessarily feel under pressure to write about stuff that they were doing because i think it was important to have a degree of autonomy yeah or independence but then, of course, it would be, oh, maybe you should write about this. Yeah. So you can kind of, like, and, and that's just... Fluff piece. And, and, well, not, not, not necessarily fluff pieces, but because there was no advertising, right, 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 that right, right. was, there, there, there is a kind of acceptance that you're, okay, this is, you have to do a little bit of that. But when yeah. it was starting to kind of encroach in on the editorial voice, I would kind of push against that because I just felt like if, if a client had done something that was 
newsworthy but not necessarily casting them in the best light I feel we had a duty to cover that yeah. and obviously do it in a balanced way as I hoped I did with everything else that's but that's brilliant. But I mean, like, I... but that sometimes that causes problems. Sometimes you just go like, okay, we have to, we yeah. just have to be seen to be independent. Yeah. So, so but, sometimes um, there's uh, little tensions, but I don't think I never had a kind of stand-up argument about things. Right. I, I mean, the, the 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 gap there between you being at AIM and then when we first met at, uh, yeah. at Fruct, which is this agency we're talking about. I mean, the, the gap's not huge, but the way you're describing being an editor is is somebody that's you know got deep principles about how they're, they're you know, going to do these. Yeah. So what, what was the kind of transition into being an editor of a, of a, a magazine from being yeah. you know, sort, of a, sort of a fairly low-level person at AIM, is it I, fair no, to I say? Was, no, I was very much the office junior, yeah. very much so. Right. And I, and I think I was there for a couple of years, kind of, because I took, I took a couple of months off to finish my PhD, and then I was kind of going, like, what am I going to do? And I thought, I don't, even at that point, I thought I was still going to be in academia. And then I just got approached by the founders. They, it was at some event. And oh, they right. just said, oh, we've started this publication. They'd set up this company. We're going to do this publication. And they just said, we need somebody to write. And because my background was academia, so it was kind of research analysis, writing, uh, had basic concept of grammar and spelling, things yeah. like that. And then they just said, do you want to do this? And I went... All right. Wow. So, like, kind of my entire career has people been going, do you want to do this? And going, <laughs> all right. Rather than having this kind of Machiavellian strategy for right. my career. To get to the top. Yeah. To get to the top. All yeah. I wanted to do was really, from the age of about 10, all I wanted to do was live in London and work in music in some capacity. What that was, I didn't care. Yeah. These were two things. I wanted to kind of work in music if I could. And that could have been music academia. I just, that's the only thing I was genuinely interested in. And Coronation Street. These are the only things I care about. Basically, I have no interest in sport, any of that sort of stuff. So like, my world was like entirely music. That's all I listen to well that's all I listen to but that's all I spent my money on and yeah. cared about really yeah yeah so I just wanted to kind of uh, somehow or other get into this great magical factory that is the music industry uh, it, it had the it had the same sort of allure for, for me as well I, th- yeah. I, I, I think probably a lot of people that, that are trying to get into the, the music industry um, unless as you say they're the sort of person that has that sort of like Machiavellia kind of like type of approach to their whole yeah. lives because some people do they plan oh, it out um, but I think most people are just, uh, at least a lot of the people that I come across in the industry are, are genuine music fans. That's that's where it began. For yeah, them. yeah. They, they kind of you want to kind of get in and then just go find something that will let me stay here. Yeah. What do, <laughs> what can I do? What, what what kind of job do I have to take to stay here? I, I do often, if I've ever got to introduce myself to say a group of people or whatever, it is always like, and I, somehow I've managed to, you know, be employed in the music industry yeah. the entire like I, time. Like I knew no one, I literally knew no one, yeah. and I had no idea how to go about getting a job in the music industry. Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, and, when, and the music industry is terrible. Well, well, Advertising well, jobs. There, there, was, the music there wasn't a clear path for that, was there? And, and there was well, so there many. Well, there was, but yeah. I think it's like this. There is. A kind of a weird thing about it, it attracts a certain type of person. Yeah. I think the best people are the ones that, 
and I know it's a very romanticised thing, the outsider. I don't think I don't necessarily adhere to that outsider thing. I think it's people who kind of feel this magnetic pull to music. Yeah. And I don't think that <clears throat> I know more about music than anyone else, or that I feel music more than anyone else. Yeah. But I just feel this compulsion to kind of be part of that world, to kind of to to be uh, kind of within the glare of the spotlight a little bit, kind of creeping around on the edges somewhere yeah. and just being involved, kind of rolling your sleeves up in some capacity. But like, you didn't, I didn't know what jobs there were. Like, you kind of go, like, if somebody had said, oh, you could work for a label or a publisher, go, yeah. what um, am I going to do? Yeah, right. Or you could work in radio, or you could work in journalism, or you sure. could work in live, or all of these kind of different component parts. And, yeah, I just kind of went, I just want to be involved. So, the, what, a go. What, what's great for me is that you're supporting some of my theories about uh, about how to get into the music industry and do I need to know a lot about music to have a career in it? Um, yeah. uh, I, think, I, think, I think you and... need to be genuinely interested in it. Yeah. And kind of. He's been enthusiastic. Yeah, no, no, absolutely be an enthusiast and just read stuff. I, I think I've, I've, in recent years I've had to kind of stop. Reading so many books about music. <laughs> you do. I have to I say, your, your, your timeline is full of the next yeah, autobiography of somebody or whatever. I don't see that as work. I still, yeah, you enjoy. I still really, really love reading books. That we, either if it's books about artists or books about people in the industry and stuff, and then I have to go, I should actually read. And then suddenly there's like all these gaps in my knowledge of literature. Yeah. And I just go, right, I need to start reading. Yeah. X or Y. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now I have to kind of balance that out and go, right, okay, I'm not going to read about music, but I think I'll probably read. I read a lot because I set myself a kind of New Year uh, uh, resolution years ago because I felt I wasn't reading enough because of the internet and TV and stuff. Yeah. To read a book a week. That was my. So I said, if oh, I wow. can read a book a week for one year, I'll have kind of achieve that. And I just kept going with that. But I would say. I read probably 60 to 70 books a year. That's, that's a lot. I have no children, so that's why. Well, <laughs> okay. But is it, does it, is it a sort of replacement for what, I guess, like some... I mean, I sit and watch box sets of TV. Stuff I, still, I, still, will, I and... still will watch TV, but now, because it's become this regular thing, I get really itchy if I'm kind of falling behind ah, on my targets. Okay. And All obviously, right. on summer holidays and Christmas and stuff, you can rattle through, you can kind of roar through books, which yeah. is great. But, uh, yeah, I kind of get a bit tight. But now I'm kind of going, right, okay, I can't have any more than a third, generally a quarter, will be kind of music-related just to... But that's still, like, 15, 20 music books a year. Yeah, maybe. right. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot. I mean, I which I, is a lot. I, I, I love reading, but I struggle to find the time. And whenever I do, it's when I'm going to bed at night, and then I just fall asleep, right. and I get sort of a chapter in. You know, if, if <laughs> I have a social life or children, I wouldn't <laughs> read. But because I have neither, that's my that's my uh, uh, deflection technique from the hollowness of my life. Yeah, well, I, f- I fill it with books and uh, Coronation Street. I, That's I, all I have. What, no, I have more than that. One of one of my, my one of my favourite things to do, uh, which is related, is um, I, I, I often go to Indonesia for for, for vacation because yeah. my, half my family is yeah. from there, and there's a particular bar and a particular hotel that I I. It's like that's the 
the first time I get to relax is when I'm sitting with a book. Oh, right. Having a beer, watching the ocean. You know, it's like, oh, for me, so that, nice. that's like the perfect moment for me. If I, could, oh. if I could do that every day, I would, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, my girlfriend, when we met and we were talking about holidays and stuff, um, it's that kind of, you're kind of feeling out what you're like as a person and kind of what you're interested in. Well, the first thing that I immediately, when she's the one for me, was when... Uh, we were talking about kind of what time you would go to bed normally, and mm. I just like to go to bed really early. And I would go, I usually go to bed about ten thirty, yeah. thinking that's kind of still quite early. And she goes, God, I go to bed at ten o'clock. Oh yes. wow! But then when we were talking about holidays, we'd just go, What's your kind of ideal holiday? And she would go, Sitting by a pool or a beach and read loads of books and then go out for nice food, and that's it. Wow. And I'm going, that's exactly why I went for other wow. So, yeah, so those kind of things are amazing. And, yeah, just like just that idea of going on holidays and just go, I can read and just do this, and it's just like switch off. It's brilliant. Yeah. So, uh, kind, of, kind of related. So, so 5.8 was a printed magazine. Yes. I mean, do you think that sort of format works today? Like, is it, is, I mean, and then I've sort of got a follow-up question about, I mean, I, obviously you've just talked a lot about reading yeah do you still enjoy printed writing as a consumer and do you think it's necessary or is it just nice i think if you're trying to be a generalist mm -hmm. i think it's really difficult to kind of justify print and i think obviously you'll see that in terms of newspaper circulation declining mm. uh, and so forth but then it's the kind of the, it's the specialists things that that really justify if you kind of you properly call about what your market is and know that you kind of have a monopoly on that information and no one else is competing with you you can justify a print thing so I think like uh, it's a kind of uh, illustration of my kind of consumption I'll read obviously read a lot online but what I subscribe to in print is uh, Private Eye and Viz. Right. So <laughs> all, all the basic food groups, because no one does kind of politics and kind of satire like uh, Private Eye, and yeah. nobody does anything like Viz. Yeah. And Viz wouldn't, I don't think, would work online, and obviously that's a kind of uh, a, a sign of my massive uh, immaturity and um, age that I, uh, I, I still subscribe to Viz and still argue that it's... <laughs> it's, it's funnier than it ever was it's brilliant I genuinely, genuinely love it, it is, and, it but then like historically I would have bought The Guardian on Saturday and The Observer on Sunday or whatever and I just don't have time to kind of wait for it. and there's also there's an enormous amount of stuff I'm not interested in so like a lot of the kind of supplements no interest yeah so right so travel sport, sport fashion yeah. all of that sort of stuff I'm just not that interested in so then I'm going I'm just buying it for little tiny bits of kind of culture and mm. business. That's all. Culture and business is all I'm interested in. And if they could sell me a kind of reduced version of that yeah, on right. print, I would probably buy it. So then I'll read all that stuff online. But I think the kind of the, the niche thing and the kind of the, I guess kind of the premium or luxury thing is as well is nice. And in terms of my reading, I would say two thirds is still print books. And a third Kindle. Right. Other okay. e-readers are available. I was going to say, yes. yeah. I, uh, I, I, but, I, also, but that's partly because there's lots of stuff that's not available as mm, e-books. That's true. Or 
because so you have to buy stuff second hand or there is uh, the price there's still the pricing in terms of print books and ebooks is ridiculous because you go the the print book is kind of discounted on release and it's like as much as the kindle version yeah and you go well there's so that, right, so there's still a bit of a challenge in your head of like, yeah, like the value also that you're, you're like, as a, also yeah, and I think it's it's also it's good to have books there in terms of references as well. So mm-hmm. like I'll kind of that's kind of on my shelf in terms of stuff that I'll kind of go right. I need to know about this and know exactly right. what book I need to pull down right, that right, right, right. kind of give me the kind of information that I need. So I like, and obviously yeah, you can have that on a Kindle or whatever. But I, I think for certain books, and like if it's a book that I really like, I'll hold on to it. I yeah. think. And I'll buy stuff, and then every couple of years I'll just go to uh, Oxfam and just dump a load of books that I'm happy to have read once, but don't need to read again. Yeah, sure. So I kind of like, yeah, there'll be a kind of acquisition and purge process every couple of years yeah. until I'm actually literally tripping over them and just go, right, okay. I need to do a clear <laughs> out, so I'm due a clear out, so I think that'll be Christmas, just kind right, of going right, through right. and throwing a load of books down to Charlie shops, and then obviously I'll see a load of books in there and buy them, so it's kind of, it's just, it's like the the, the trials of Sisyphus, I'll just go and go to a charity shop and get rid of a load of books and then spoil some that I've got to buy, so I'll just walk out with as many as I gave them. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that bad, but... Uh, yeah, but there's a lot of that going on. Right, right, so right. So it's kind of displacement. Yes. yes. <laughs> Interesting. Um, okay, so this is a slightly long question, so I apologise okay. for this. Um, <clears throat> uh, like most higher-profile jobs in the music industry, typically people get them because of some level of notoriety or because their their work history comes with experience, which is useful to the hiring entity. For a journalist and industry expert, that notoriety can I'm sure help book gigs or open the you know the, the door to an interview in the first place did you did you think much about that at the beginning because uh, I'd rather assume that as a journalist you always sort of felt that you were behind the camera as opposed to in front of the camera yeah so what do you mean in terms of people wanting to speak to me well, yeah like it, what, did, <coughs> was it something that you kind of gave any thought to like before like to sort of become a you know a public figure or at least well known in the industry was that no, something not at all i thought that i would very happily kind of exist behind the scenes i think like and i wouldn't say i'm known at all i wouldn't say that uh, at all okay, like, people, people... like you, i would say that you're very well known within our industry right you know okay. I, like i i well i think that's I'm, probably just I'm... because of my job that you end up speaking to everyone so then well, yeah, I guess so, but you know, but you, as I say, like I, for me, I think you know, you're one of the few go-to people for, uh, like, certainly, if, you know, if I if I had a magazine or a TV program or something, right, okay. and I wanted opinion, yeah, you're going to be one of the people I go to because I know that one, you're very well read on many many different subjects, and you can give a sort of fairly impartial kind of yeah. viewpoint on it. You know, well, I hope so. Yeah, sort of a, to- a talking head, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I kind of do a lot of that. I think that's. It's also partly down to the fact that how the BBC works is you just end up on a call sheet. <laughs> right. and, I, and I know so that... A, uh, a version of nepotism, kind of. Well, yeah. no, it's not necessarily that. It's like, and I know what it's like as a journalist, where you just go, if I need someone to talk about this... Yeah. So if I need to quickly call up someone and talk about something to do with music law, there's probably about 10, 12 people... 
that I know that I A can call up and they'll take the call mm -hmm. and B will have something interesting to say. And, and the BBC, that because these researchers are working across a multitude of topics, they're like, you just go into the system. So I end up getting on because someone I vaguely knew in BBC News, uh, it was like in the very early days of Spotify and nobody really knew what this thing was. Right. And then they said, oh, can you come on the radio and explain what this is? Mm. And then just suddenly, because they've contacted you, you go into a system, then suddenly, You'll get the, you sometimes you get these weird calls from kind of regional BBC stations going, Cheryl Cole's gone on tour, what do you think of that? You've got no interest in it. Like, yeah. just have to, they, that's not my area. So I think there must be like categories where it just goes music and my name's there. And right, I know right, that right, if right, I'm right. ringing up, if I'm rung up to, and they'll say, oh, can you talk about someone's new album? They've basically called every other music journalist, i.e. consumer yeah. music journalist, and they'll all right. say no, and I'll just go, I could go up and say something, but it's not my area. So yeah. I go, I write about, I write about business, but so then that must be the next column. So it'll say music business, and then the, sometimes there be there was somebody actually winding me up today to talk about uh, Taylor Swift on the World Service, Amazing. Um, and that was because they'd spoken to me before in previous right. times, and they're okay. They can and they kind of ring you up and say, can you come on and, and chat about this. So it's, it's that kind of weird thing, because they all share the same database, so you're kind of like suddenly, you're just on a Rolodex after yeah. a point, and you just go, right, okay. Sure. And they know that, and I think there's probably a score system is difficult, or swears too much, or doesn't answer their phone, or yeah. whatever, and there'll be these little ticks. So I think, hopefully, I've kind of got a clean sheet. And I want, I will turn down a lot of stuff, but just go, I'm not qualified to talk about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. I, I, you've actually, you just reminded me of something, I don't know if you remember this, but the only time I've ever done a, a TV interview was for BBC Worldwide, and they'd originally called up um, asking for Gavin Robertson, because I was working for him yeah. at the time. And they they wanted to ask about. Um, you should put on a Scottish accent. R Russian. And said something really bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't do accents. Um, and it was it was something about um, uh, the, the sort of Russia, yeah, piracy in Russia and all of MP3. I think was. Oh in, yeah, in a news all of MP3. Wow, yeah. those were the days. Yeah, and I, and I sort of went oh, okay because Gavin was I think he was in Scotland so he couldn't do it because it, right. it was down in London, and uh, so I was like okay uh, sure I can do that. Damn, now what? And I remember like speaking to you and texting you as I was going on the oh way God. to there, and you oh, were and you were sending me notes, oh, and that? I and I pretty much managed to get the way through the whole interview thanks to all of your notes because because oh, wow. obviously you were writing about that sort of stuff at the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, who do I know who's going to know about this <laughs> stuff? Anyway, so that's, I got fee for that. I've just stole all my ideas. I, I did get. I did. Get that's piracy that. of my <laughs> ideas. It's a infringement well, of my IP. I, I'd like to think that you licensed it by you inferred that I license. Did, yes, by, uh, no, it was creative. It was creative commons. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, when I did that, I, I got uh, incredibly nervous beforehand. In fact, I didn't even realise that they were they were recording it live. And so, I at one point, I think I almost I thought in my head, I was going to say to them, "Oh, can we start that again?" So I can <laughs> kind of represent. But it was actually going out live, and I, I didn't realise that until yeah. the end. And they went, "Oh no, that was." And I was like, "What?" Uh, and so, do you, do you do you get nervous about doing these things? Oh God, yeah. I think yeah. kind of uh, like it's like you, you you hear that from pop stars. Like if, if you go if they go on stage and they aren't nervous, they know they're going to do a really bad performance. I think right. not having nerves in something implies a kind of a level of arrogance and a level of 
kind of entitlement that perhaps you don't deserve. So I think you, you kind of need that kind of uh, being on edge, and you go right. Am I? And it makes your brain kind of fire in a particular way because you go, I need to be articulate. I think obviously people listening to this will now realise that I'm very bad on TV because they want really short answers. They want something really simple. And sometimes they want to really, they want you, and I've turned down loads of stuff like this, where they want a very binary, do you think this is a good thing or a bad thing? Right, right. They, and invariably it's, is Spotify good for the music industry or bad for the music industry? And you go, well, it's kind of both. Yeah. And, and then they, they just they, look at you they, and like... They don't like that. So it's this yeah. idea of kind of, it's either A or B. Yeah. And... I think, yeah, I know people that can kind of turn up and, and do that. And I just go, well I, don't, well, I don't believe that it's this amazing thing or it's this terrible thing. I can talk to you about what's good about it. I can yeah. talk to you about what I think is bad about it. But kind of that nuance. And so sometimes shows, particularly kind of the more magazine-y type shows, want you very much want that kind of binary position and it's kind of yeah. set you up against someone who believes the exact opposite. And you go, well... Nothing gets resolved in that. It it's is, a ridiculous force dance, this dance around yeah. kind of extreme positions because nothing's that. And I just think it's kind of TV in particular wants that. It's like, um, do you remember the Mrs. Merton show? Yeah. Let's have a heated debate. It's let's have a heated debate. Right, right, right. And, and yeah. that's it. And you go like that doesn't help anyone. Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't add any knowledge. Or, or anything to that. It's, it's, it's like yeah. this is this kind of shows my academic background. It's that old kind of kind of philosophical argument about thesis, antithesis, and, thin, and synthesis. So it's that idea of kind of tr kind of figuring out all of the different arguments and trying to figure out well another academic term, epistemology, the kind of the validity of truth or the study of truth. And that's a very grand way of saying me going well. It's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. That's my pretentious I, way of saying it's complicated. Uh, I, so I, I, I do a, a few bits of uh, consultancy for investment companies um, yeah. or investment firms. And at the moment, it's all it's all companies that are looking at investing in streaming services and that kind of stuff. And they, they just... Don't, want, there's no yeah. money in it. Right? Well, yeah, this is the thing. So, so they, they sort of come on the phone and they, they have sort of general questions about, you know, like, uh, you know, what's you know, the typical ARPU and like, what do you get paid through as a, say, a record company or as an artist? And they, yeah. want, they want to understand the nuances about publishing and, and recording rights and, and yeah. how does that work from a mathematics point of view and all, yeah. the, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, and-, and Are you basically getting paid a lot to say it depends? So that was exactly <laughs> what I was about to say. So I, I did one on, on Monday and, uh, and, I, and I started to apologize because every, every single time they asked me a question, I would begin with, well, it depends, and <laughs> and it just it became kind of ridiculous. But I mean, that's kind of the music that, industry. That, yeah, no, that, 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 yeah, that's that's your first lesson in the music industry. It depends. Yeah, there you go. But also, <laughs> and it's a thing I always quote, top tip. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's also a thing that I quote a lot, which is uh, a thing uh, Scott Cohen, the mighty Scott Cohen. Oh, if yes. People, if people listening to this want to know stuff. Follow what Scott Cohen's doing. He, Absolutely. He set up the orchard. He now works at Warner. Head of innovation, and, is it? Yes. Yeah. And Scott lives in the future. Scott's brilliant. He's yeah. kind of like some kind of weird time traveller. Yeah. And he always says this. He's kind of one of his, his kind of mantras is, you think, you know, about the music industry, guess what? It's all changed. Yeah. And that's every day. Yeah. And I think... Yeah, that's true. 
that's that's and it also uh, I use that as a kind of maxim in my life. And there's also another quote years and years and years ago. He's retired now. It was a guy called Brett Hansen who ran MTV in mm. Europe. Uh, guy a Kiwi who kind of came over, and he was amazing. And he said something to me in an interview once, and he just said that. When you're in the industry, when you're in the music industry and you meet anyone who says they know everything about the music industry, automatically distrust everything they say because they know nothing. Uh So those kind of two things, always kind of be searching for, don't never assume you know everything Mm -hmm. and also be prepared to kind of jettison everything you know because it's changing. So between Ben Hansen and Scott Cohen, I think there's those are two very good rules to approach this industry in. And, and also the simple fact is that the fact that it's changing is exciting. And I yeah. think there's a there's a there's a great quote from David Bowie about kind of how how do you kind of uh, know when you're being creative? And he said it's like when you're going in the sea and you're kind of you're walking out and you still feel the the seabed beneath you, and then you kind of start going out. A little bit further, and you can kind of sense that it's still there. And he said, "Just go a little bit further out." And he said, "That's when you start to become creative." Wow! So not that I'm going to be comparing myself to David Bowie, but it's just that sense yeah. of just kind of knowing mm. that you have to, you can't presume anything, and also you need to kind of constantly kind of push yourself out that little bit more, because as soon as you think that you know everything, you, what you know is redundant yeah and i think you need to be keenly aware of that at all time because then you listen to people yeah and i think when you think you know everything you stop listening and this applies to everyone from the lowest entrant to the most senior executive when you stop listening and this is well there's a double meaning there when you stop listening to stuff about the industry but when you stop listening to music you need to leave the music industry. Yeah, yeah, and no, I'd agree with that. Yeah, I, I, I think there's, I, 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 I've gone through this myself, and I've been guilty of this, um, and I, I see it now in, in other people. And not that age is always the, the indicator here, but um, certainly I, I had a, a point in my career where I'd had fairly senior positions of, you know, sort of in my twenties, and it just, I, either it had gone to my head or I got a bit lazy. He's very arrogant. He, what, he, was, he was like that. He, he, he used to ride around on a Harley Davidson and everything. <laughs> oh my God, the arrogance of the man. <laughs> yeah, and, and, I, you know, and, I, and it wasn't until I think, um, but I, you know, my situation had changed and I sort of was able to kind of take a step back and go, actually, maybe I don't, maybe I'm not as good as I think I am type of thing. Yeah. And, and it was this kind of like, oh, wow, you know, like now I've, it was like a very freeing experience. Yeah. But I'd certainly come across people you know, at the moment, and you know, I have people that I work with at the moment, and they'll they'll tell you, you know, oh yeah, but I know everyone, and I know all of this stuff, and you're just like, does, I, that can't be true. So, no, 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 so no, stop no, saying no, it. No, yeah. I think I think you kind of you need that thirst. It's it's the same thirst that, that drew you to the to this world. As soon as you lose that, I yeah. I, I don't think you're fit for purpose. It was yeah, I, I, like even and that applies to to music as well. Like the idea if you kind of go. Oh, everything. I've heard everything before. It's just yeah. a rehash or whatever. And if you genuinely, every year, if you genuinely haven't found a new artist, minimum one, but I would say probably ten. If you don't find ten new artists a year that you're really excited about, yeah, you shouldn't. You're you're just clutter. Yeah, you're getting in the way. Yeah, getting in the way. I know. I know. There's the, the, that kind of internet meme at the moment. Okay, boomer. But yeah, like right. if you're if you're not 
yeah, if you're if if you're kind of sitting there while everything else is moving around you, yeah. you're you're just an obstacle, and you're not doing yourself a, a certain uh, you're doing yourself a disservice, and also you're just Detroitness. That's a very arrogant thing to say, but I think you need to not be arrogant. That's the thing, and, yeah. and like if you think you know everything, you don't. Yeah. Yeah. You're 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 in the wrong business, or you're you're an obstacle to the business and the people around you making it a better business. So, uh, so I mean, listeners to this will have heard me talk about this before. I have this kind of um, I, I'm sure I borrowed it from somebody else. I forget where, but you know, the did only, I text you the note? Uh, p- probably. There's, yeah. There's your arrogance for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So to quote Dr. Eamon Ford, no, um, it wasn't me. <laughs> uh, I have this thing about the the only two things that that are important in the music industry are the the audience and the artist or the artist and the audience yeah, yeah. around and anything else either is enhancing that relationship or it's getting in the way yeah and that's that's pretty much how i i you know i view the industry and oh completely sort of yeah and well. i think i think you you have to understand that you're just one tiny part of this amazing complex machine yeah that if you disappear nothing's going to change yeah um, i think that's really important obviously in your kind of your social life and your family life, someone disappearing leaves a massive hole in your life. But anyone walking out of the music industry who thinks that the music industry can survive without them, yeah, 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 just yeah. Leave, please leave the music industry, and we'll see if the music industry can survive without you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think yeah, I think it's just kind of knowing. I think it's just kind of having curiosity at all time. I don't know that that should be a kind of trait for journalists or writers is that you kind of have to be kind of curious and but I think that applies to anybody who works in music I think that just whatever part of the business you're in just be curious just kind of want to find new stuff it's like I mentioned him earlier Seymour Stein he used to go like you would see him at conferences and he's a very old man now and yeah. he'd still be out of gigs yeah no I've, I've seen him at things like meet him and, and whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like kind of in the city in Manchester yeah. when it was still going. He would be there. Yeah, and so yeah. he was like, he, even then, kind of 15 years ago, he was like, he had he had his walking stick and stuff like that. And he yeah. was one of these filthy, filthy <laughs> pubs in Manchester in the hope that he would find the next Madonna. Uh, stay hungry, or, yeah. or, or the next Ramones. And yeah. you, you see that. And it's like kind of people I'd mentioned earlier like you would go to like some filthy club in like you would go to the windmill of Brixton that holds like 150 people and you'll see I don't know you'll see Jeff Travis there yeah because they're they're they have that hunger they just want to find the next thing yeah and I think that yeah that idea if you're only going to like particularly if you work at a record company if you're only going to see the acts on your record company you're wrong I think probably the, the the best person for this is probably Lawrence Bell at Domino. Right. Lawrence is always right. out of gigs, and he might not. It's not even just stuff that he signed. It's just he's he's interested. Yeah. He just wants yeah, to yeah. see what's going on, and I think he doesn't like he's obviously signed incredible artists, but he just wants to find the next incredible artist. Yeah. And, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and those are people that you but, trust. I remember uh, every time I ever bump into my gigs, I'll go. Who have you signed or who you interested in signing? <laughs> right. And invariably it'll be somebody that that's your next favourite band. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because it, it comes with this huge stamp of uh, authority or um, 
somebody like Hannah Oberlin, uh, secretly Canadian as well, every time I see her, I'll go, who are you interested in signing? Yeah. Just because she'll throw names at me and I'll just go, right, okay. I'm and and you're going to check it out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, most of the time, it's stuff that I love. And because you just know well, that... Trusted curators. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. And it's finding those people. And, and that's the great thing to remember about the music industry is it's absolutely packed with fans. Yeah. To the to burst in at the seams with fans. <laughs> well, one, well, another one is uh, Steve Owen at uh, Apple. Right. Um, who's the head of curation I in, don't U- know him, in the no. UK. Okay, yeah. yeah. And, you know, he's, he's you see him at all, loads of gigs, you know, and, you know, things like... Uh, the Great Escape in Brighton. You yeah, know, yeah, he'll, yeah, He won't necessarily tell people that he's there necessarily, but he'll just kind of lurk and he'll be there. I like that but because he just he just loves it. He just he wants to know, you know, what what are they like live? You know, they, they, somebody they, sent me it, yeah. you know, but I want to know what they like. As live. much as as much as the altar is coming through, it's people like that who are the lifeblood of the whole thing. These are the people that he, make he's things there, happen. He's been there from the beginning in the UK. Yeah, for, for, no, it's, yeah, it's amazing it's iTunes, that yeah. because. And in that world as well, because you're kind of in a very corporate structure at something like Apple, yeah. so it's amazing to kind of have that existence, because you yeah. see, like, I don't know if, like, the really, really senior people at the major labels have got time to go out and see stuff. I don't know. You've got to wonder, haven't you? Yeah, well, I mean, you know... And it, they've got so many obligations, because whenever an artist is in time, they're duty-bound to go and see that's true, that yeah, artist and stuff like that, and they've got a lot of work obligations. And things Yeah, like but I remember a few years ago, I... Had a meeting with Dorcas Bees from from Ireland. It was still running Ireland in the UK, and we were supposed to be talking about something. And I think for the first forty minutes, we just talked about kind of what stuff we were interested in, what stuff we were listening to. Yeah. And it was just, and like I would mention stuff, and he's going, "Oh, all right then." Or Mike Smith, who was running Columbia for a while and is in publishing, a legend in publishing. He'll if you say, "Oh, I like this." They'll listen. Yeah. You go, oh, have you heard this band? They go, no, I've never heard them. And you go, my God, they're taking me seriously. Right, so they're not dismissive and they're not no, condescending. No, not at all. They're, they're just go, they're, yeah. they're, their antennae is up. That's, that's probably the, the TLDR of this thing. Have your antennae <laughs> up at all times. Right, right, right. And that's in terms of about, about business stuff. That's about in terms of culture. That's in terms of art. And... Obviously, you will li- you will hear a lot of terrible stuff. I'm not going to lie to people and say that all music is brilliant and all art is amazing. There's a lot of terrible stuff out there, yeah. as in everything. But if your default position is, oh, I've heard everything, and it's not as good as in my day, or which could be five years ago or twenty years ago, yeah. That's kind of I don't know. That's just you shouldn't. You, you need to have a word with yourself. And yeah. Just go. Maybe I'm not contributing here. What everyone should have their kind of uh, shoulder to the wheel. Yeah, for sure. And when you're sitting there at the back of the queue or, or at the back, when everybody else is trying to shunt this wheel along, and you're eating a sandwich, don't then. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't stand behind the wheel eating the sandwich. That's my advice. <laughs> I'm gonna have to do the uh, the transcription on this because that's going in the show notes. So, uh, changing tack ever so slightly, yeah. uh, as a question. I, I know you wanted this to be short, but I know I'm, we. I'm, I've, I'm, I've, we, talked, we talked about. Uh, we, we were about to hit an hour. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but you know what? Like, I'm going to go with it, and I and I've, I've said to people I'm, that listen to this, I'm never editing this, and so uh, that you're going to get a very long episode. Well, yes. um, this is why I should never go on TV. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, it's a, fortunately, this is a podcast. It's working. The format's yeah. good, uh, as long as the memory card holds out. I've broken a hard drive. That's, that's my legacy. He's the man who broke the hard drive. So, um, so I've got to ask um, about the, the, the book, uh, the, the Final Days of EMI, so yes. Selling the Pig. Now, yes. I think there's a, a good story behind how that came about, but so I, I've never actually asked you. Um, so I'm, I'm curious as to how that, because that, that's your first book? Yes. Yeah. Well, no, I, I, I wrote a kind of bluffer's guide thing, but that, was right. more okay. of, uh, uh, that wasn't like kind of a research thing. That was just a little kind of sewing project I, I did for them. Right. Uh, but, th- but this is a proper book. This is a, a, well, it's, it's a, printed, it's, so yes, yeah, it's a book. Yeah, it's, uh, on, it's on it's on Amazon. You can search for it. Uh, or Waterstones, <laughs> if you want to. Oh, and other yeah, uh, other bookshops uh, are available. Other less tax efficient yeah. bookshops are available. <laughs> right. Uh, I bought mine from Amazon. I might return it and get, oh, get yeah. it from Waterstones. Yeah, yeah. I get no royalties for that. No idea. It's fine. <laughs> Just buy books wherever you can get books. That's there, I there don't. I, I'm not. I'm not precious about where people buy books from. Just buy books. Yeah. Uh, where did it come from? I wrote a, a piece many years ago for a magazine called The Word. Mm, I don't know if wow. people remember that. Yeah. And I ended up kind sure of being still there. still a Wikipedia page about yes. it. Yes. Yeah. It was a brilliant magazine. I yeah. ended up kind of being their music industry correspondent. So basically, right. anytime they wanted anything about the music industry. And I was kind of just chatting to people who were kind of in and around that story. I was kind of following the whole EMI Terraferma story while it was happening anyway. And I was talking to people in and around that, and I kind of went, there's, there's something in this. That yeah. I think, and at that point, Terra Firma had lost control of EMI. I think EMI had then been bought by Universal. Right. So I think that was the hook to kind of right. go, how did, it, how did EMI end up being bought by, or most of it being bought by Universal? Uh, so I pitched it to them and I said, I'll speak to people. So obviously I knew people at EMI and people who were kind of involved yeah. in the periphery. And then I uh, thought, okay, I need to speak to Guy Hans, who was the head of Terra Firma, uh, who kind of ran the deal. And I got to speak to him. Which, which I, I think is amazing. I mean, I, you know, this, is just, this is just for the magazine article as well. Oh, for the, oh I see. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So I interviewed him for that. Right, right, right. And then I wrote the piece, and, uh, which went down really well. Trumpet Blast, I got, uh, I got business, Music Business Writer of the Year at the Record of the Day Awards for that piece. I think, it, I think it must have been that piece. And um, people just kept talking about it, kind of going, like, it was kind of, it was in a small magazine, but it was a thing that people kept talking about. Because right. I, cause they let me write a long piece. I think I probably did, like, 12,000 words. Which right. For a magazine article, it's insane. I mean, had, like, it, had anyone else covered it? Because, I mean, it was a huge deal for the, people, the whole industry, yeah, it, it, like, globally. It, it, right? it had been run as a... It had been written about a lot, but just in terms of rolling news. Nobody had kind of written a big yeah. kind of piece, and after the dust had settled, kind of piece yeah. and all together. I don't think so, anyway. And then, so, and that kind of went down, seemed to go down very well. And then a few years later, I got approached by people at Omnibus, who, and they said, pitch us some ideas for a book. Really mm. interesting, because they mostly, they're a music specialist, but they mostly do artist biographies and autobiographies yeah and they said they had done like the, the old business book here and there and they said we should do a lot more of that so uh, a guy I knew 
who used to work at AMI ironically, who used mm. to run Abbey Road, a guy called uh, Dave Holly, right. who's working for Music Sales, which is the parent company. Right, right, right. And he said, just come in and just pitch some ideas. Right. You should write some of these. Like, have you got have you got any ideas for a big? And I don't know if you thought of anything. So I pitched various ideas, and that was one of them. And obviously, right, right, right. because it was EMI and he worked there, he was yeah. interested. But then I had to go into the people there, and they went, "No, definitely do that." Yeah. So then I got uh, offered a big deal with them to do it. I went, mean, oh "God, and I got right the thing." So did, did you find it easier? Because um, obviously there was a. a Ten years gap between when you started writing the they, book and Terraform lost control in uh, two thousand early two thousand and eleven, and I okay. would have started so, yeah. working on the book twenty seventeen. Okay, all right. Okay, so it's more like half decade. But I think the what had happened was there were two court cases against Terraform to try and sue CD Group, who'd lent the money over. Had they been misled? Yeah. It's all in the book, yeah. but. Uh, the second court case, Terra Firma had withdrawn from that, and then that meant that's the end of it. Yeah. So there was finally, there was a full stop. So like, right, okay, right, that right, is right. the end of it. And at that point, it was kind of being carved up between all the other majors, and yeah, no, I think that all happened anyway. So there was, there was a kind of a, there was a, there was a very clear start to the story, had a very clear end to the story. So that made it easier to go, right, okay, I've got this thing. window of yeah. time and it's not going to drag on and whatever. So, and then it was just a case of but, I mean, you, speaking you, to people. Yeah, just going to do a you, lot of interviews. You, you tracked down a, a, an awful lot of people. And I, I think and I, I did. And they, I, they, were, they were talking pretty candidly, right? I mean, lot, they, they, well, a they, lot of people for various reasons. Some people still working in the music industry, some people who'd signed NDAs, yeah, sure. whatever, yeah, yeah. went off the record. And I think I ended up speaking to about, I think I did something like 65 formal interviews, something like that. Right, 65, um, wow. Something like that, and about, probably about another 20 kind of small off-the-record things and just little conversations and stuff. So probably, I would say in total, as a kind of an aggregate, there's probably about 100 different people who were involved in different parts of that story that I spoke to. Yeah, amazing. Um, some on the record, some off the record, some on background, some just kind of formulate ideas in my head and yeah. stuff. Did, did, did you get a, a different um, kind of version of events from Guy the second time around? Or? No, not at all. Well, he was, he um, was consistent? Um, yeah, um, right. to his credit, uh, when, I, when I went to meet him, I said, I want to speak to you at the end, because you're obviously the biggest player in this whole story. Right. I will, I'm going off, I'm going to interview people, and then I'll come and speak to you right at the very end. And right. he, was, he was, he wasn't the last interview, because somebody came through at the last minute that I'd been chasing for a while, but like it was the last big, big. Yeah, yeah, sure. And uh, to his credit, he said, who do you need to speak to on my side? And lined up various people that Terra Firma had brought in. So that obviously helped where he could just go, used to, he had zero input in terms of the questions or anything like that. Mm. They, nobody had copy approval over anything. One person who was a lawyer said, let me see my quotes just so that I'm correct on that. I won't right. let you change them. And he said, like, if there's anything factually incorrect and like they didn't add anything, but it was just because of what they could, what stuff they could and couldn't make public. Right. So they so. had to check with that. So they didn't get quote approval, it was just assurance that quotes from them <coughs> that were attributed to them were correct. 
so they didn't change anything. And, uh, so I think kind of uh, there's probably about 20 people in and around Terra Firma that I ended up interviewing. Wow. And I kind of got to speak to pretty much everybody. And, uh, and then I did two days of interviews with Guy Hans in uh, Guernsey because he lives over there for tax reasons. Yeah. So I had to go over there uh, because his, like, I don't know how many days you're allowed in the UK. It's like something, yeah, it's like 10 it. or 12 days. Yeah. Over here, and I thought, well, he's obviously can't sacrifice two days just to chat to me. It's easier if I go over there. So, yeah. like, I just had him in his boardroom in Guernsey for two afternoons. Wow. Oh, that's a lot of time, so like, isn't it? So, like, I think it was like four hours each day. Yeah. Doing interviews. Yeah, wow. So, and that was really good because, to his credit, he didn't dodge a single question. Some people may disagree with his answers. Yeah. Some people might not think that he said what he should have said or whatever. Yeah, but yeah. like he, the, he, at no point did he say, I, "I'm not answering that," uh, which was really good. But, which is kind of amazing because it's, I mean, it's kind of embarrassing in some respects. But I guess he doesn't. I mean, I think, having, I think, having... I think maybe part of his thing was like he had been caricatured in a certain way. Yeah. He was the there, there was a, I think there was one of the. There's a quote in the book from one of the business pages, and they described him as a kind of dishevelled kind of guy with like messy hair and yeah. tomb, tombstone teeth, I remember was the quote. Mm. And he'd kind of been corrected in a certain way. And I think that, and this is kind of like the, the going back to the point about listening, like there was, the, there was a certain idea of what happened in that day that had kind of become ossified in the business, which was... Oregon City people come in, think they can mm -hmm. tell the music industry mm -hmm. what to do, completely misunderstand it, lose their shirts, screw those guys. Yeah. And they would like and there was the idea that they were just these kind of kind of aggressive asset strippers who didn't care about blah 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 blah. And I thought that I didn't genuinely didn't think that was the case. Yeah. But I wanted to speak to lots of people and I think that they went in there obviously they're a private equity company, they wanted to turn EMR around and make money on it. Yeah. Of course they did. Uh, and like, like people think that the music industry is not about money they're in the wrong business but like mm -hmm. I think art and commerce can coexist absolutely yeah uh, that's a very anti-Marxist thing I think uh, 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 my academic background would go to the Frankfurt School and Theodore Adorno <laughs> and people like that would, and, uh, and their theories of the cultural industries would completely uh, uh, contradict that but I, I think they can coexist but I think that I just wanted to kind of tell the story. I thought I thought there was a really good story in there. Yeah. But I also f wanted to uh, kind of show that it was a lot more complicated than people thought. And obviously, you can do that in a bit because everything's reduced and it's everything's kind of boiled down to caricatures in like kind of newspaper reports. So I thought there's a lot more going on here, and so obviously, I need to speak to everyone and try and make sense of it. So yeah. that was kind of. That's kind of the task that I kind of set myself. And there were like, there's stuff that's kind of being repeated today that all we know is absolute rubbish. There is lies that people, that, that just never happened. Yeah, so yeah. accusations about how Terra Firma ran, accusations about the way EMI previously ran, a lot of that stuff. Uh, like for example, there was a, a legendary, the, the tale of, uh, <coughs> The fruit and flowers budget. Yes, that um, was the one that I was going to mention because that, that was that was the big kind of like yeah, rumor and, that, at the time. And, that, and that was a story that ended up in the press for various reasons. Yeah. I, I've heard various reasons about why that ended up in the press, um, whatever. 
that the idea that EMI had this drugs budget and the prostitutes mm-hmm. budget, uh, and and that's how decadent the company was. And I spoke to a lot of people at EMI. Some people who, if that was true, would have had an interest in keeping that quiet. Yeah. And other people who would have known on that and who had no, who told me the most candid stuff, and they said that's an absolute lie. That did not happen. I, I swear to you on my life. And these are people that I know and trust, and they have yeah. no reason to lie about that one point because they yeah, were so yeah, open yeah. about absolutely everything else. So it just didn't exist. Yeah, interesting. And people that I still meet people now will just go, oh, EMI fruit and flowers. I'm going, like, yeah, I, yeah, it, yeah. Didn't, it did not happen. I'm sure, I'm not going to lie, like, like, to think that it was a major record company in the 90s and the early 2000s, mm. and people. Well, nobody in the in that company took drugs. Of course they did. Yeah. But then, everybody in every industry in the UK took drugs. Yeah. This was not some kind of thing that was exclusive to the music industry. Absolutely. But the fact that there was these dedicated budgets to that, no, yeah. I'm sure people were misabusing their expenses accounts. Yeah, I mean, I, absolutely, I, that would have happened. But the idea that there was a dedicated budget for that is ju- it's just rubbish. But and I, I so there's little things like that. You just go like. I've spoken to lots of people and I have not found one shred of evidence to suggest that this could even potentially be true. Yeah. So I, I that's mean, not that, it's not just about that, but it's little things like that, but then also that cuts through to the kind of the operational side, the restructuring side, that a lot of the stuff that's kind of become cemented in myth perhaps didn't quite happen. Right. So I thought you need to speak to everyone just to, to kind of figure out. that out. Yeah, so, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, and it's done well? The book? It has, yeah. Yeah, yeah it seems to have done. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like it, it sold. Well, I thought it was going to sell a tiny amount because it's such a it's such a niche subject. Yeah. And the publishers told me that it was their biggest pre-order on a book in like five years or something Goodness. like that. Well, congratulations, that's awesome. But that doesn't mean that it sold loads. It's not like it's not sold like no, but, John's autobiography or but still, uh, Adam yeah. K book, uh, This Is Gonna Hurt. It's not gonna be a blockbuster, but for an industry book, it sold way, way, way more than I thought it was gonna do. Well, I was one of the pre-orders. Well, thank <laughs> you very much. But, I, and look, I think, you know, that speaks to, you know, some of the stuff I was saying you know, about you before being a kind of a you know figurehead and, and something that people you know, somebody that people like generally speaking um, and so when, when you started talking about doing it and obviously you know friends you know we got this kind of running commentary of how many words you've written each yeah, day yeah, yeah. and things like that so I think you did a good uh, pre-release campaign that was not the intention <laughs> no, I know it wasn't. I'd taken a month off to write it oh wow so that was that was cabin fever that was just my kind of one, uh, my cry to yeah. the world <laughs> Well, it was well. It worked, and, yeah, yeah. and I think uh, you know a lot of record executives could learn an awful lot about that uh, that pre-release campaign. Right. Okay. That was I, I, my advice to people writing a book: do not write a book in a month. That, yeah. That's my advice. Right. I'm working on another one at the minute, and I'm going to take six months, kind of in between other jobs, oh, wow. to kind of write that. I'll, yeah. I'll be doing interviews and research until next summer, and then I'm going to take like six months to. I might do one day a week, kind of writing on the book, but just like having. A solid month just writing a book is so, probably uh, not healthy. Same publisher? Yeah. Same yeah. Publisher. And uh, and right. So I guess you know they obviously felt like yeah. And, and this p- is pitch is something else. Yeah. Well, uh, this was the this was the book that I pitched them originally. Oh, I well, see. Well, no, well, I keep okay. me, they said 
pitches some ideas and I happened to be working on a Guardian piece on this. And that was obviously front of my mind. Right, right, so right. So I said, I want to do something on this. And they went, okay. And then I, like, and then I went so, through a couple of other things and then EMI was another one. So is this the, is this the, is this the, the thing that, uh, uh, there's a, a scene in Entourage about this, but you know, the, the, uh, the, the major film star that wants to go off and do their art house project. Is this, is this the next book going to be no, your sort of is, like vanity this, project? This, and this, and no, no, this is, this is, this another is serious not, one? No, I thought it's another industry book. And mm, I'm, okay. I, 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 it's public, kind of, well, it's not public, what it is, but I'm, I'm out doing interviews for it. It's on the business of artist estates, how do how your estates run as businesses, what are the different component parts and stuff. And in my mind, when I was pitching it to the publisher, I was going, well, like it's it's obviously it's about really famous people, mm. or there's that's, kind of a hook. So it's going to be cool. Elvis and John Lennon and Bob Marley and David Bowie and Prince and and you can put lots of pop stars on yeah. it. And my sell to for the EMI book was it's it's one company versus another, and mm. um, it's not driven. Well, of course, there's business personalities, but there's I consciously didn't interview any pop stars on EMI for this because I thought, well, it's their managers mm -hmm. who are doing all the deals, and also they were involved in it. They were they you could be an observer in terms mm. of kind of what it meant for being dropped or whatever, but I, I wanted to, the, that EMI book just to be a pure business book, because I think once you start introducing artists, it becomes a different book. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, but true. with this one, I thought, well, that's the one that, that kind of fits more in with their idea, because they do artist biographies and stuff like that. So this is kind of a themed biography that just happens to be about people who are dad and yeah. the business around them. Well, and, and it's an interesting subject, isn't it? Because, I, I mean, I, I, my, my timelines and my social media got kind of full of a particular point with people going, oh my goodness, another person's died. People just keep dying. I don't right. know. It, it, it seems to be very fashionable at the moment. Well, yeah, it's, it's either that or it's just obviously that we now um, consume information in a different way. Right? Well, I think it's also that certain uh, kind of pop stars of a certain era That's true. are yeah. just... Just getting Meeting to that age. Their, 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 their natural end. No, yeah. no, no, that sounds very, very correct. <laughs> but no, they're, 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 most people are dying of natural causes. Yeah. Like, because there is that great cliche of, of music, the 27 Club, which is right, like right, right. Jim Morrison and Brian Jones and Hendrix and Janis Joplin and Amy yeah. Winehouse and these yeah. people who yeah. kind of lived very, ex um, Jeff Buckley as well, yeah. who lived these kind of excessive or reckless lives mm -hmm. in whatever way and they died. Yeah. Because uh, they got fame and they got money, and then it just like they uh, like they kind of went uh, kind of their lives spiraled out of control for whatever reason. Yeah. But now you're getting to the point where it's just people are dying of old age, yeah. or the things that quote unquote normal people die of. So like yeah. Bowie died of cancer, and like Leonard Cohen was a ripe old age when he passed away, and. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And whatever else, so it's like we're at that age now, where it's just these people, unfortunately, are just starting to die because yeah. they're old. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. through excess or overindulgence; it's just they're dying of the things that normal people die of. Yeah, no, it's going to be good. So I'm, I'm very uh, curious to uh, to get a hold of coffee when you right. when you finish it, it, it off. It'll be a so. long time. It won't, it won't be out oh, till at least 2021. Oh, really? We really started right, the, right, right. kind of the research, so I'll be kind of writing it up by. I'll kind of have something written by Christmas 2020 is the plan. Right, cool. These things just don't come out of nowhere, you know? No, you're right. No, it's basically my entire life on this book and the other book, just doing interviews and transcribing yeah. for 
the first year that's wow. all that like you're squeezing it in around everything else but that's all you you're just doing the interviews and transcribing and then the well no the interviews are always fun because you learn stuff well, I was going to ask you about that, because obviously there's kind of like different parts of the process. Like if you're a photographer these days, you'll take photos and then you've got to spend a lot of time kind of in Photoshop editing and, and yeah, making yeah. things right. It's similar with journalism, you'll do the interviews and then you've kind of got to go away. And we, we talked about it at the beginning, this kind yeah. of this, I've got to condense this down. Do you, do you enjoy that as much as yeah. the, the interviews? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, that's really good. Oh, that's fun because... You're coming back. I think it's it's good to kind of have the interviews and transcribe them out of the way, and then you've kind of forgotten them, and then you know the really good stuff. And also, when you're transcribing, you you know what's a really good quote immediately, so you'll kind of highlight that in your yeah. notes. But it's good to kind of come back to it fresh because then you realise they say this, and it's an obvious point. Or I've got another interview with someone else who makes the same point in a better way, so I'll use those quotes and stuff like that. So, yeah. kind of, so it's kind of like kind of, uh, uh, kind of 3D, um, kind of like, uh, uh, what's that one, Sim City or something like right. that? You're kind of like building stuff. So you kind of need, you just need to, so there's just a lot of kind of, heavy lift not heavy lifting you just got to just go and plug away and just interview people and there might you might do an hour-long interview and it might take you half a day to transcribe and tidy up and you might only use 200 words from that yeah sure from that person but it's the idea is like suddenly all of this information is kind of coming into your head and you're kind of processing it as as the kind of the research is going on so it's kind of starting to form in your head in a weird way mm. and then just kind of sit down and go right okay how do I structure this what what's and with the EMI book that was really that was quite an easy not easy it was a straightforward structure because it was a chronology yeah, yeah. tell the yeah, story you, you, yeah. in order and with this book it's going to be themed right so, so you're not maybe not sure exactly where you're going to end up with it I've go I on. pitched it I pitched it to them around it was it was a th- each chapter is a part of the business of estates. Right. So every chapter is kind of self-contained. Same artists could appear in on the same people that run estates, could appear in several chapters talking about different parts of the business. But I think the idea is that I want to explain that what the artist estates business is, is there's a lot of different parts. So it'll be, there'll be things like kind of how, 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 how they run as businesses then, what are the legal issues, how does this apply to merchandise, how does this apply, what's the issue of a will, because like people like Prince die without leaving a will, what does that mean? All right. So, because uh, that obviously dictates what can and can't be done, yeah, sure. or who controls it, yeah. and then, then you go through to things like new technologies and uh, hologram tours and that kind of thing, which is something that's really only is relatively new yeah so this is a whole yeah. part of yeah. the and i guess and that, then also that, the impact of streaming like yeah. how, how does streaming affect when an artist dies because it used to be you physically had to rush in a great rush in go to the manufacturing plant and kind of print up three million copies of elvis's greatest hits and that would take two months to hit the shops yeah and now it's just only you just you just do an update that this is in certain name of, i'm not going to mention any yeah. even pop stars no please that, don't please don't there's, there's, there's not enough wood in here to touch uh, yes. but doing that like suddenly you can just go like, and obviously people want when someone dies as 
people will have seen him with like kind of huge names yeah, like, Mike, like Mike Bowie Jackson, and Prince or yeah. Michael Jackson or Leonard yeah. Cohen or all of these amazing legendary people you may not have listened to the music for a while then suddenly but, you just want yeah. to gorge on that and, and then you can go to yeah and you can go to your streaming service of choice mm-hmm. and suddenly it's all there yeah and, and it takes and it, I don't think there's anything ghoulish about suddenly racing to a playlist I think it's just a, it's a nice tribute to that artist but that's yeah. obviously that's changed the mechanics of the business where suddenly everything's available and you don't have to kind of go and kind of press up these records because there's, yeah. there's a clear demand for this music yeah, yeah. Um, but it can be immediately satisfied by people going on YouTube or insert your name of your favourite music streaming service here yeah so, uh, that, and, that, that whole sort of that that, that commercial commerce part of yeah. of this subject matter is, is I think for anyone in the in the, in the record industry it's it's I think if they've got a conscience yeah. they, they struggle with it re- I mean I, I've been in, in companies yeah, yeah. when these things have happened and it's oh, kind oh. of like what should we do because there's kind of this there's this want to um, you know protect legacy yeah. I suppose and, and image and, and mm-hmm. you know that that kind of that thing that will outlast this person that's passed away but yeah. then there's that sort of like oh god now we're making albums or playlists that are you know in remembrance of or whatever and it, yeah. and it just feels like oh now I'm just capitalising this this horrible situation no absolutely but you can and I've spoken to people already and uh, I'll not tell any stories because I don't know if some of these mm. are going to have to have their names changed or whatever <laughs> yeah. but there are I know of, of cases where there have been really crass things have been done sure and then I know of other artists where they died and because they'd had well documented problems mm. in their in their life right that there was a proper gap between them dying and them putting on any kind of right. kind of best off or yeah, sure. introduction to and there's one artist in particular uh, and it took them a couple of years to put anything out right because they right, just right, went right. we got to move really sensitively with this yeah and then they, they put something out and that was fine. I think kind of rushing something out and kind of just putting a kind of full price sticker and, and, on and the front is... And, and it's for the fans as much as it is for family, yeah. right? Yeah. But lots of people want this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like that stuff, That's I know true. I know it's not... Uh, it's You're not forcing this down anyone's throat. There is a, there, there yeah, is a demand for yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. So you would have that with, like, you, you would speak to people in when kind of in the, the, the mighty days when kind of our price and HMV and Virgin kind of ruled the high street, when someone died, they would be, someone would be coming in and go, do you have any insert name of dad pop star here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have any Nirvana or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And people had wondered that stuff. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But like obviously kind of banging out something and then just going, that's 35 pounds, please. That's, that's a bit crass. Yeah. All, all like, I'm like, obviously, we as consumers are complicit in that as well. True, but, uh, true, very true. But uh, people want to hear that music because they either love that artist or they've been told this artist is really good and important. And unfortunately, it takes them to pass away for, for people to, to pay attention. Kind of like, yeah. And this is, and this kind of goes back to point about kind of being interested in music. It's a, it kind of it's a recurrent point about kind of cherish all the musicians that you love. Mm-hmm while they're still alive yeah, yeah, yeah. go and see them live yeah absolutely buy the records listen to them because 
it's a kind of it's a timely reminder that they're not going to be around forever. Yeah. Mm. And if you ever are lucky enough to meet a pop star that you like, tell them you like them. That's my advice. It was somebody who um, uh, they said this. It was a friend of journalist, and I'll not mention who it was, but it was someone who was in a very niche band, and they uh, had bumped into them at a gig, oh, right. and they just went, "Oh my God! I just have to tell you yeah. that this album changed my life, and it was amazing, and I love it, and I just love your music." And then uh, a couple of months later that artist died. Oh my goodness. Really suddenly. Oh, and they were just wow. going, and they, the artist wasn't even playing the gig, they just happened to bump into them at yeah. another gig. Yeah, and yeah, they yeah. just went, I'm so glad that I went up to them and said, I love your music. Yeah. And that's kind of, that's another thing that's kind of stuck with me. So like, if occasionally I do meet someone that I like, I'll just go up to them and just go, I just want to say I really, really yeah. love I, I've done it. your stuff. Yeah. And yeah. you don't want to be, you don't want, you, you never you, want you, to be. You kind of want to be able to say it and then run away. That, that's, <laughs> that's, that's all I, like I was at a, um, a big event last week in, and this is not saying that this person's ill or not, but I was at a big event uh, in Manchester and one of the people speaking was Jordan, the original punk, who wow. worked in Zach with Malcolm McLaren and um, being in Westwood and uh, uh, and was kind of new kind of the sex pistol. She she's done her memoirs. So uh, Defying Gravity, if you want to read it, it's a brilliant. She'd never really kind of spoken about it, but she was kind of the kind of architect of the punk look, and she right. was amazing. And I saw her. Like, I sat in her talk, and then I saw her later, and I just went up to her and I just want to say hi. I just wanted to say that. I loved your book. I thought it was amazing, and that was it. And yeah. they just kind of walked away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think it's really important yeah, to okay. tell people that if they've done something great, and you've got the opportunity to tell them they've done something great, tell them they've done something great. Wonderful. You won't regret it. All right. Um, well, we are just about to tip into the hour and a half, oh which God. is incredible because this has flown by. I've really enjoyed uh, having this chance to kind of you know talk talk to you about stuff that I probably wouldn't have done if I hadn't done this podcast oh, like right on the psychologist psychiatrist coach <laughs> no well it's been it's been very uh, very very therapeutic for me that's for sure that's good that's good <laughs> indeed uh, so we'll, we'll wrap up there um so to my oh, little no, go on well maybe we'll have a whole like <laughs> aiming category oh my god what do you, you think? don't want that <laughs> yeah i was telling alex about uh podcast that runs to four and a half hours we're not going to go to, we're not we're well not going to go to you know maybe in the next one yeah, but, yeah, but, but, yeah, but yeah, yeah maybe not yeah. That, that's yeah. i don't i, I need when, to buy when, when i'm dead you can kind of release the well, the full version this is yeah. this is great this is, this is your catalog yeah catalog indeed marketing, all the old <laughs> yeah. um, so to my listeners thank you for listening um, as ever sorry uh, to make you <laughs> nice long no, they, I, I think they will be uh, uh, thoroughly uh, appreciative of your time, as I am. Um, and so, um, as ever, you know, I welcome all feedback, comments, and suggestions for future shows. Make it shorter. But um, 
Uh, yeah, well, I take well. If you'd like to send me that suggestion, then uh, you I use my Twitter handle at Alex Branson. And if you want to have a direct message conversation with me, Eamon, all you've got to do is put podcast DM, and I'll follow you back. I do already, uh, and then uh, and then you can uh, you can send me a message. Um, also, visit the website www.abcmusic.co, and there's a contacts page there with my email address on. So once again, thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Eamon, for your time. Thank you very much for letting me waffle on. No man, it's been brilliant. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Thank you. Bye.